Catch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. fans are rejoicing now with uh, finally selling the team to Steve Cohen. I know, Jordan, that'll, that'll appease you. we got plenty of other off-season news. Trevor Bauer just won the NL uh, Cy Young. I know there were some, some debates between whether it should have been him, potentially DeGrom. Uh, Notre Dame knocks off number one Clemson. Steelers remain 8-0 and much more here to talk about. Uh, so I guess we'll start with the, uh, with the Mets. You know, Mets fans have been punching the air for years, guys, shaking their heads, screaming at the TV, you know, over missed opportunities and questionable choices. Uh, you know, the, the, the chance of sell the team, sell the team. And uh, they finally got their wish. Um, so what does this mean? Does this mean a total rebuild, you know, an increase in payroll, automatic winning? What do you guys think? I got this one. So I'm going to quote Steve Cohen's presser here. He goes, quote, I'm not in this for a short-term fix. I don't want to be a good one year and bad three. I want to be good every year. That's the goal, and that's the team I want to build, quote. He also says, quote, Quote, if I don't win a World Series in the next three to five years, I'd consider that slightly disappointing, end quote. So this really speaks of what the team's trying to do, and this is what I've been saying about the Mets all along. They're, they have enough talent where they're not a team that needs a full rebuild. You know, this isn't the Detroit Tigers. This isn't the Miami Marlins. Although I know the Marlins are up and coming, but in all honesty, I did not see them as a contender last season. Anyways, between all the talent you have, on the offensive side, like McNeil, even Dom Smith coming up, Alonzo, Conforto. It's just an endless list. If you look at certain metrics, they were arguably a top three. If you factor in runners in scoring position, probably a top five offense in the National League. The issue is that they had no pitching. But my point is that they had enough talent on this roster where you don't need to tear it apart. You'd be foolish to tear it apart. Much like Mike Trout, you have probably the best pitcher in baseball for the next I don't know, several years locked up pitching in his prime. How many more Jacob deGrom years of this are you going to get? So I think that three to five window, while it's realistic, in my opinion, Cohen obviously, Cohen, excuse me, said he's obviously trying to do it sooner. I think they brought in Sandy Alderson because, you know, Cohen's more of a business guy. He doesn't really know the baseball end as much. Alderson's been around forever, true professional. He knows exactly what he's doing, and... The Mets are also in a very unique financial position because they're probably one of 30 teams that didn't lose money because of the pandemic because they have new owner Steve Cohen coming in. So while other teams like even the Yankees might cut back, the Mets may surprise you in actual – they may be spenders. As Alderson said, they're going to be shopping in the uh, the gourmet food section of the supermarket. So yeah, we'll Jordan, you bring up a funny point season. actually uh, about the, the Mets you know, having decent hitting last year but not really any – pitching, kind of a role reversal from what we've seen in the past. You know, we expected going into that season the Mets to have great pitching, and then it just all, you know, all went to hell. And, uh, you know, they just got re-signed Stroman, I saw, so things could be looking up this year for the, for, the new, for the Mets. So on the pitching end, the last season, things just didn't go their way. Obviously, on paper, they had one of the top rotations in baseball, but then what happens? Marcus Stroman opts out, Noah Syndergaard gets hurt, and Steven Matz is garbage so what does that leave you with DeGrom you have to pull Lugo out of the bullpen slot him in the rotation and then you only let him go maybe 80 85 pitches anyways 
And you have David Peterson from Oregon, who actually impressed me. So DeGrom and Peterson are probably our one-two. Now that we have Strowman on his $18.9 million qualifying offer, it solidifies that rotation anymore. Do they go out and get a Jordan, uh, at this point? I just want to start I off. I hope so. Hey, Jordan, I just want to start off by saying um, this is a monumental day for the New York Mets franchise. I saw many people say on Twitter that this may be possibly the best day in franchise history since they won the 1986 World Series. I think one of the most telling quotes from Steve Cohen's press conference uh, this week was when he was asked about why did he purchase the team? And the quote is, it's quote, he says, essentially, I'm doing it for the fans. I can make millions of people happy and what an unbelievable opportunity that is. I'm not trying to make money here. It's really about building something great, building something for the fans, winning, end quote. So I think that's just really telling of what this new era of Mets baseball is going to be. We, we, we heard so many complaints with the Wilpons about how they were really trying to save money and they would not spend big, big on the free agent market. Now you have an owner who, he's a Mets fan himself. He grew up in Long Island. He's a Mets fan. He can relate to the fan base, you know, one of the most passionate fan bases in the in the league. Um, so I think that's a huge stepping stone. The fact that he's a fan of the team is already just, I guess, another reason to motivate you know him to make the team great. Anyway, my point is, you could just you could tell his attitude in the press conference, super upbeat, you know, super optimistic for the team. He's willing to spend on the market. The Mets play in New York City the largest city in, in the United States and that should make them a big market club, but because of, you know, previous management and their owners, that has not been the case. But hey, we start with Marcus Stroman, as Jack mentioned. I think there were r- rumors going around that he would not resign with the Mets, but once uh Cohen was introduced, actually just yesterday, he said like uh Stroman said I'm all in, like I wanna play for this man, like this this is the type of organization I want to represent. So and again, keep in mind, this is one day later. So I think, guys, that this is a great sign for the future of the Mets. I know he's only an owner, but that's going to go a long way because the owner tri- trickles down to the GM, trickles down to the, the players, and you know, and all that combined leads to wins. Um, I'm super happy about this as a Mets fan. I'm, I'm sure, Jordan, you can say the same. And I know the offseason is, is just beginning, but we have a lot to look forward to. And, you know, uh, baseball will begin in March or April. I, I know Steve Cohen said three to five years, but I saw the Mets right now. They're plus 900 to win the National League. Guys, that is a great bet in my opinion. Well, to touch up on uh, what you said about Stroman really quick, he accepted the qualifying offer today of 18.9. Good decision on both sides. Obviously, the Mets now have that insurance, now having uh, a third starting pitcher to go with Peterson and DeGrom, possibly Lugo. We'll see about that. But my point being... Nobody was going to give him 18.9 annually. This is obviously a move that Stroman needed to make. And, you know, the Mets certainly don't mind him pitching motivated for a contract next year. He helps the team. It all works out. Before we move on from the Mets, I just want to touch up on something very quickly. A uh, possible Francisco Lindor trade from the Indians to the Mets. The Mets are about one of five teams linked to him. And obviously the Indians want the Mets to be involved because of all the all the depth they have at shortstop. Now this is a trade that SNY put together, and I want to know your thoughts. In the SNY mock trade, the Mets would receive Francisco Lindor. The Indians would receive Brandon Nimmo or J.D. Davis. 
Ahmed Rosario or Andres Jimenez, and then one of their lower level prospects, either Thomas Zaputki or Josh Wolf. What do you think about that? Yeah, actually, Jordan and I have been discussing these trade rumors the past few days. Um, originally, I was on the Lindor train. I, you know, thought that this would be kind of the move to push the Mets to the next level, get that All Star shortstop. But looking at the trade rumors that are swirling around, just specifically the rumor that Jordan just talked about. So we get Lindor, but you trade away Nimmo, who's a budding superstar in the outfield. J.D. Davis, who is a versatile player, can play the infield or the outfield. Not a star player, but in a very quality hitter. Andres Jimenez, obviously Lindor um, is better than him there. So um, so, that, so that, that, that side of the trade um, is worth it. But you also trade Rosario. So I understand that Lindor is better than both of them for sure. But the two of them, that's questionable. And that's on top of Nimmo or Davis. And then the two lower-level prospects, I'm not too knowledgeable about either of them. I just think three of those players combined, for example, let's say if it was Nimmo, uh, Rosario, and Josh Wolf. I know that, you know, those aren't really household names, but um, two, two or three, two of those three guys are, you know, key mainstays in the Mets lineup and defense. Um, and again, I know Lindor is one of the best players in the league, but I think the Mets can kind of use their um, their, their trade assets otherwise to kind of spread the wealth and not put all their assets into one trade. Um, I mean, Jordan or, Jordan or Jack, uh, what do you think, you know, following up on that statement? Well, to touch up on your question about those two lower-level prospects mentioned, Josh Wolf is a pitcher who was just taken, I think, maybe two drafts ago, and Thomas Zaputki is a left-handed pitcher, pretty similar to Steven Matz. I think they might have even gone to the same Long Island High School He's, he's kind of viewed as a middle-of-the-rotation guy. I like him. He's He had Tommy John several years ago, so he's been kind of backed up for a while. Now, here's what I don't like about the trade. I'm, I'm not comparing uh, Jimenez to or Rosario, for that matter, to Francisco Lindor. Lindor is a superstar. He's probably a top-two shortstop, if not the best. However, you need to look at this. I think Jimenez is the best defensive player on the field. What I noticed most and what impressed me most about Jimenez is he played the shortstop position like a professional. He really just reminded me of a young but mature Jose Reyes out there. He's already the team's biggest stolen base threat, and he's he's their best defender. He impressed me so much. I know his hitting, especially the power, wasn't always there, but you know he'll grow into his power. That's my opinion. And even if you look at it financially, you have another six years of team control of an elite prospect. You know, even look at even look at Andrelton Simmons, who I guess is now with uh, the Angels. He was an elite defender. He's one, arguably, according to metrics, the best defensive player ever. And I don't know if I'd go that far. Metrics love this guy. He's really good. But anyways, he grew into his hitting the last several years. But my point being this, you have six years of Jimenez, under team control, probably three years until he's arbitration eligible. Why would you give that up? You know, with either Rosario or even Maruccio, from what I heard, why would you give up two of your three young prospects who you have under team control for the next six seasons for a one-year rental on Francisco Lindor, who you're going to have to pay an arm and a leg to re-sign because he's, he's, he only has one year left on his deal. 
And, you know, for that matter, it just doesn't make sense that you're wasting money and players to upgrade a position you don't have a hole. Their biggest holes are catcher, center field, pitcher, you know, starter, obviously, but they need some help in the bullpen. This is a team with a lot of holes. They're a talented team, but they have holes to fill. Shortstop, in particular, you know, infield is not their biggest hole. So to waste all those resources to fill a hole they don't really need filled See, I'm, is just silly. I'm going to go the, I'm gonna go the opposite stance here, and I understand that completely, and, and, you know, I see those points. But you look at a team like the Mets, you look at Lindor, he's 26. He's a four-time All-Star. He's helped lead the Indians to three division titles, four playoff appearances. Yeah, probably a top, top two, maybe the best shortstop in the league young and if you if you're the Mets now you just have Cohen and you you want to win soon like you want to win the World Series you're now competing with Atlanta still who's very good you compete with the Dodgers year in and year out and if the Mets are going to be a National League contender I think you want a star like Francisco Lindor on your team I think a guy like Lindor who, who will be your instant best player could be a guy that the Mets need to win her in Jack I I agree that the Mets need a superstar player, but kind of like I mentioned before, I don't think shortstop is the best use of their funds and their kind of free agency um, and or trade targets. However, one name in the market who might be the best player available, and he has actually been linked to the Mets, is George Springer. He's a local kid from New Britain, Connecticut. Went to play baseball at the University of Connecticut in stores. Uh, he's a star for the Astros. He is a three-time All-Star as well. He won the World Series in 2017, um, despite you know the Astros' cheating allegations. Um, he is, I think, like I said, I think he's the top player on the market. And the only question is, and this is kind of a good problem to have, if the Mets get Springer, they would have kind of a logjam in the out. They would have a logjam in the outfield. They would have Dominic Smith, George Springer, Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto. Um, and I might be forgetting a player as well. Um, and this is also depending on if the National League keeps the designated hitter. Um, regardless, I think if you slot Springer in center field, make him the the one or two hitter in the lineup, um, I honestly think that uh, hitting-wise, he's probably close to Lindor, if, you know, if not better. It's probably roughly equal. But I think defensively, you know, he's, he's a, he's a top-tier defensive player as well. And then you get to keep, you know, Rosario and or Jimenez at shortstop, uh, which I just think kind of is a better a better allocation of their resources overall. You know, maybe if the if the Mets get Springer another good hitter, they'll they'll last until uh August before they're they're out of contention as opposed to June. Jack, I'm not kidding when I say plus nine hundred on the Mets to win the National League pennant. I'm telling you now, today is November 11th, you know, get back to me in around 10 months. And, you know, I, I'm, I really think that I have a good chance of being correct. Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And another point, actually, guys, about uh, you guys not liking the Lindor, a possible Lindor trade. As I understand the point, we, we just saw the Mets in the past trading prospects who, uh, who, we, be, who we believe to get a star in Diaz and uh, blew up in their face. So I understand where you're coming from there. I mean, I mean, Jack, the thing... Well, well, no, nobody except for Brody Van Wagenen. I, thought, I, that thought, was it was good, I thought it was a good deal. Jack, the thing about to give up top top prospects to I get Robinson Cano, PED Robinson Cano. I, I don't think so. I d- Although, look, Francisco Lindor yeah, is worlds was. better than Diaz and Cano. Yes, for sure. So I don't think that would be a bad a bad trade for the Mets to get Francisco Lindor. 
trust me, I want Lindor at shortstop. You know, that'd be great as a Mets fan, but you're going to have to lock him up after that, and you're giving up lots of talent. You're not really filling a hole. You still have all these other areas you need to fix. Yeah, my, my point is to to have a star like that could be the player the Mets need to carry him over the hump. I mean, yeah, kind of like yeah, I mean, was with the Dodgers. But if anything, you look at the package the uh, the Dodgers gave up, you know, several prospects, the biggest name probably being Alex Verdugo. That deal wasn't that prospect rich because uh, they ate most of the salary of David Price. This probably wouldn't happen unless, you know, unless Cleveland eats or the Mets choose to eat significant money. They're probably going to have to give up lots of prospects. It's going to be a bigger prospect haul than the trade. To, oh, no, I know what you mean. You know, I'm, I'm saying sometimes it might be worth yeah. the risk of a prospect. I mean, like the Astros did it. They gave up Colin Moran and Joe Musgrove and got Garrett Cole. Jack. I mean, yeah, but that, that's Colin Moran and Joe Musgrove. The, Jack, just a quick comment uh, before uh, regarding that, Edwin. Did, the Pirates think every minor league player is expected. Look, the, I, 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 I'm and so does Brady I was saying at the time they were they were they were we didn't know they were prospects they were questionable which is which is the same deal for the Mets. Jack, Jack, this quick question. I'm uh, sorry, quick uh, point I wanted to make, um, just regarding the Edwin Diaz uh, trade. The Mets obviously lost the deal, you know, Cano and Diaz for Kalanick. But you look at the deal in hindsight again. This is something that Jordan and I were discussing lately. Jared uh, Kalanick, excuse me if I didn't pronounce that correctly. Um, He's a top 20 prospect in baseball now, and he's going to be, in all likelihood, a future uh, superstar in Seattle, Washington. So I think when you look at it from that perspective, that he rose up the farm system super quickly, and Diaz and um, Cano, you know, while they were good at times, definitely not worth the haul. Um, I think that just makes the trade look all the more worse for the Mets. Look, Kalenic was a Sandy Alderson's first-round draft choice in 20... 2018. Probably look, I, 18, Yeah, 2018. Yeah, he's Baseball America has him at number nine. MLB has him at number nine. Scouts have been quoted saying he's a once in a generation type of prospect. And now Sandy Alderson comes back to the Mets two years later, and you know one of his top draft choices was kind of just stolen. Look, from I'm, I'm not I'm not arguing in hindsight the deal looks bad, but I I do think there's something to be said for giving up a couple prospects to get a 25 year old proven star. I Jack, I agree with you, but it, it it also depends on kind of what the Mets blueprint is. As you saw, as we heard in the Steve Cohen press conference, the Mets want to win now, of course, but they're also kind of going for the long term. They're going for now. They're going for three years, five years, et cetera. So, as yeah, and that's another thing I love about Sandy Alderson. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but Alders Alderson's been doing this since the '80s. He's been a talent evaluator. He's been a a scout, uh, you know, player coordinator, obviously general manager. He knows the importance of a farm system. He's not just going to blow up his biggest prospects. He knows he, they're trying to win now, but we're also trying to win later and not mess up the farm system. Because once you trade everything you have, then your organization starts to kind of come off the tracks. Absolutely. And just a quick point regarding that, uh, regarding the comments made by Steve Cohen. The Mets just, I think, yesterday or by the time this podcast is released, it'll be later. So on November 10th, they released a hype video uh, in the wake of uh, Steve Cohen's press conference, you know, with his quotes and some highlights. If you're a Mets fan, you have to watch this video. 
it'll get you super hyped up for the season. And as as a Mets fan, I know that it may be ecstatic, you know, for uh, for baseball to come around. Okay, I'm thinking about uh, I'm thinking about moving on here uh, to to Trevor Bauer winning the the uh, National League Cy Young. Any last points on the Mets or? No, I mean, I think that's a good transition because I think, you know, the Mets are kind of involved. Um, Jacob DeGrom finished third in Cy Young voting behind uh, Trevor Bauer, Cincinnati, and Hugh Darvish on the Chicago Cubs. Pretty much went as expected. Um, however, this does mean that Jacob DeGrom did not win the Cy Young, did not win the Cy Young for the first time since 2017. Crazy, crazy to think, you know, considering that he kind of came out of nowhere um, out of the Mets farm system was not really a highly recruited prospect coming out of college or high school. Um, and as we all know the story by now, DeGrom has emerged into one of the top arms, not only in baseball now, but probably one of the top baseball pitchers of the you know the 21st century. It's crazy to think of it, think of it like that, but it's, it's in all honesty, it's probably true. Anyway, uh, Bauer becomes the first pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds uh, to ever win the Cy Young, which is crazy considering they've been around for like 150 years. Um, Anyway, guys, what are your thoughts on the uh, Cy Young race? We could address the American League race as well. Uh, won, unanim- won unanimously by Shane Bieber for the Indians. Um, any thoughts there? And, again, I know it's an, it was an abbreviated season, but do you think anyone was snubbed, um, or do you think that both candidates uh, were deserving of their wins? I think Bauer, absolutely. I look at this. I mean, you could have given it to DeGrom for sure. And, I mean, people wouldn't have been – they wouldn't have been criticized for that. I mean, DeGrom could have easily won it this year. But if you look at Trevor Bauer, he had a 1.73 ERA, which is which is 4.66 points better than the prior season. He had 100 strikeouts, which was second in the NL to just U Darvish. Uh, and, and to take a Cincinnati Reds team who missed the playoffs and now gets into the playoffs, uh, I think Bauer definitely is deserving of it. Only pitcher this year to have two shutouts and in, uh, in two starts. Um, I think Bauer was uh, certainly the guy in the NL. I mean, that's a fair comparison. I mean, the only thing I'm going to say to back up DeGrom is he faced tougher lineups than Bauer. He was stuck in the NL and AL East, obviously, the entire season, so he had to constantly go up against, you know, the Atlanta Braves and, as much as I hate to say it this year, the formidable Miami Marlins. He was facing kind of tougher lineups than Trevor Bauer. Not to make any excuses, though. I mean, Bauer deserved the award. Had I, if had I voted, if I had a vote, obviously I'd give it to Bauer still. But no argument made against Degrom. His story is remarkable. I uh, I was looking at a uh, Perfect Game USA and their rankings of all the players, and this came out about Degrom. I guess draft night 2010. They gave a one sentence scouting report. New to pitching. Shortstop only. Fastball 92 to 94. Ended as team's ace. Says a lot about a guy who was never ranked higher than 10 in the organization. And now he's a perennial Cy Young winner. Obviously, congratulations to Trevor Bauer. But, you know, to, to go back to the Mets for a second, maybe they have uh, the last three Cy Youngs on their roster. Who knows what happens with Trevor Bauer? I know his agent tweeted that she was very impressed with Cohen and the Mets. So. I wanted to say before, guys, I kind of slew my words a bit. It was Bauer was um, the only pitcher in the majors to record multiple shutouts this season, which I found to be pretty impressive. And I, you know, I think, I, I, that, that I, is, I think there comes, you know, the Grams won it two years in a row. And I think a, a big factor this year in giving it to Trevor Bauer might have been the fact that 
Cincinnati ended up making the playoffs. If the Mets make the playoffs, I think DeGrom is definitely the, MV- the, uh, the Cy Young once again. But I, I think... The girls yeah, in the MVP I, conversation. If they since make the since playoffs, he making the I mean, playoffs after since he's missed out on the playoffs for years for for a few years now, that's a big factor in why Bauer won this award. He carried them, and I think that's why you Darvish finished second. I mean, statistics aside, Darvish carried the Cubs into the postseason. I mean, they they didn't do much. Yeah, Jack, I just want to make a quick point about Degrom. Um, once again, congrats to Trevor Bauer. You know, fully deserving of the win. However. DeGrom is really, you know, in the thick of the race up until late in the season. I'm just looking at his stats here now on Baseball Reference. Um, so if you're a Mets fan, you probably remember that uh, amazing 18 to one win against the Toronto Buffalo Blue, uh, Toronto slash Buffalo Blue Jays. Um, so going into that game, he had a, or rather after the game, he had a 1.67 ERA. But the next three games, so his final three starts of the season, his ERA went went up subsequently in each game. And two, excuse me, in two of those games, he he allowed three runs, uh, which tied his season high, um, which is, again, pretty impressive. But in the span of three or four games, his ERA went up from 1.67 to 2.38. And 2.38 is still, you know, a very impressive ERA. But those two uh, those two games in which he allowed three runs ultimately proved costly. Uh, proved costly. And don't even get me started with his win-loss record. You know, he won four games, lost two. But I'm just looking at his stats now, and... I think he had about no decisions in half of these games. Um, so that's like the story of DeGrom's career. Anyway, my point is, um, despite you know coming in third place, he was really in the race until the final couple starts of the season. Um, so, so don't take you know don't take credit away from the masterful season that you know DeGrom put together in a uh, in a just a crazy season. To go off Alex's point, nobody is taking any credit away from Jacob DeGrom. I just think people are giving loads of credit to Trevor Bauer because he deserves it. I mean, it, it, yeah, no, Bauer totally winning the award, like, we, we're not overlooking what DeGrom did yet again. No, absolutely not. And I think what actually is getting overlooked in, you know, this tight NL Cy Young race, although Bauer kind of ran at the end, is the dominance of Shane Bieber and what he did this season. I still think DeGrom overall is the best pitcher in baseball, but Shane Bieber had one of the best pitching, shortened seasons, yes, but still best pitching seasons ever being the first player since, uh, I believe, Verlander in 2011 to win the award unanimously. He was an MVP candidate, in all honesty. He was electric. You know, I think they actually, halfway through the season, or maybe three-quarters through the season, they uh, took the AL, the AL Cy Young odds off of betting sites because how, how heavy of a favorite Shane Bieber was. It was almost like the award was locked up halfway through. It was. I just want to know what's happening in Cleveland where they get all these guys. Between, you know, trading Corey Kluber and trading uh, Trevor Bauer, Carlos Carrasco comes up before, trading Mike Clevenger, but then they still have the best pitcher in Shane Bieber. I did, w- where are they getting these guys? Great question. Uh, just a quick note before I, you know, get to your answer there. Um, Shane Bieber actually became the first uh Major League Baseball pitcher uh, since Justin Verlander in 2011 to win the uh, pitching triple crown, which, although it's more common than the batting triple crown, still super impressive. You know, with his 163 ERA, eight wins, and 122 strikeouts, um, it was a no. It was a no contest. You know, for anyone trying to yeah, Verlander won MVP that year. Verlander did win MVP. He won 24 games that year, and the Tigers, I believe, yeah. they made the playoffs. Um, 
But yeah, but yeah, Beaver put up an unbelievable season. And just to answer your question, uh, where did they acquire him from? They drafted him in the fourth round of the 2016 draft out of UC Santa Barbara. Um, so again, not a not a high draft pick, but he rose up the ranks of the farm system, and um, here he is. All right, guys, before we move on, I just want to get your thoughts on this. So I believe the MVP uh, race is announced, what, tomorrow, maybe? Yep. Or I guess if you're listening to this, uh, the MVP already happened. So we'll, we'll see if we're right or not. But uh, very briefly, if you guys had to pick NL and AL MVPs today. Okay, guys, guys quickly, what, one second, without looking anything up, uh, five bucks anybody who can tell me what the UC Santa Barbara mascot is. I already I already saw the um mascot when I looked up the um the Shane Bieber information, so I'm gonna leave this question to Jordan. But I, I, I highly doubt that he will get it. I correct. had a shirt way back when. <laughs> Jordan, any any guesses? The cheetahs. The cheetahs or the pelicans or something stupid. I, I, I think know. if you guessed a million times you wouldn't get it. It's the uh UC Santa Barbara gauchos. I, I don't know what a gaucho is either, but I used to have a shirt. Yeah, actually, just quick note there. Um, just considering, uh, kind of going on a very off topic here, but the the UC system they have some great mascots. You know that UC Santa Cruz. The, the, do you know what their the banana is? slugs? I used to have a shirt of that as well. Uh, exactly. Um, so great, great things going on in California. Um, anyway, it's a great thing about this podcast, guys. You never know where we're going to end up. We could, we're talking about the, the UC Santa Cruz banana slugs. <laughs> um. And guys, the, the, great to go back on Jordan's uh, question, the NL MVP race, it's, it's one of two guys. It's either Mookie or, or, uh, or Freddie Freeman. As much as I'd love to give it to Freeman, I'm giving it to Mookie. I mean, to, Fre- Freeman, Freeman's come so close, you know, for, for so long, and I, he really is deserving of it. But Mookie just took the Dodgers and put them over the hump, and they won the World Series. He did things that we've never seen anybody else do this year. The throws that he makes, you know, what he does at the plate, he, he's the National League MVP. Um, anyway, Jack, I'm going to actually, actually have to make a counter prediction here. Um, I, I acknowledge that Mookie Betts had an amazing year in his first year in Los Angeles, but Freddie Freeman, um, he had a 187, uh, WRC plus, which is, uh, one of those advanced stats, which was one of the highest marks, if not the highest mark in the league. He actually, um, bested Machado in bets by, by, by about 40 points there. Um, for those of you in, in, into advanced baseball analytics, um, he, he led the Braves into the NLCS. Uh, I know playoffs don't matter, but one of the best, um, or don't matter rather for uh, MVP purposes, but he led the Braves to one of the best um, seasons, um, or one of the best records rather in the league. And I think, I think it you know, kind of should be taken into consideration that Freddie I, know, it's, 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 I, I would love to see Freeman win it. I mean, he's deserved it. He's, he's had so many good seasons, and, he, and he's been so, so yeah, close I mean, for so many years. I just think that... That's what I was going to say. I think he's, he's been a mainstay for the Atlanta Braves franchise for, what, the past decade? Um, I know MVP is obviously a one-season award, but I think that you could, that kind of has to hold some weight Look, a, into his candidacy. A lot of, the, a lot of um, the time, the MVP race, as we know and as it should be, is, is individual success. We've seen it with Mike Trout you know, so many times. I think that this year, something tells me a little extra weight might be carried and unfortunate to Freeman that when they met head-to-head for the right to go to the World Series, it was Mookie who won. 
I mean, Jack, my counterpoint there is I'm pretty sure MVP MVP votes are cast before the playoffs begin. But I do, I, I yeah, do, I do are. know what you're saying. I think overall what Mookie's done is incredible, but I think Freddie Freeman is has consistently been one of the most overlooked oh, no doubt. No in doubt. baseball. You know, people you know, people know who he is, but nobody thinks oh Freddie Freeman's a top three player. But look, I'm gonna give you the short answer. Freddie Freeman is my NL MVP this year. I think Mookie comes very close, but I still give it to Freddie Freeman for what he did. And trust me, I would I would know watching uh, the Braves wall up the Mets every game. So, AL, who do you guys have? Um, AL, I'm gonna have to go with uh, Jose Ramirez. You know, on the other side of the infield from Francisco Lindor. Once again, Indians had a great season. Honestly, I'm not overly impressed with any of the AL MVP candidates this year. Jose no. Abreu and also DJ LeMahieu. Um, I just think maybe that's because I'm so used to Mike Trout winning the award. Um, but out of the, out of those three guys, I just think you know Ramirez um, had the had a very solid year, start to beginning. Indians had a great year, um, plays a premium position, shortstop, and I just again I I think it's more so about the fact that LeMahieu and Abreu didn't overly impress me um, more than you know more than Ramirez. I mean, look, watching uh, watching the Pirates, being a fan of the NL for so long, I uh, I, I don't really watch too much of the. American League, and I have a good knowledge with the NL, but the AL a little more fishy. I'd give it to uh, I'd give DJ LeMahieu. You know, I grew up rooting for the uh, rooting for the hometown team, the Pinstripes. So, let me give it to DJ. Jack, I just want to make a quick quick comment there. You said that you're a little bit fishy about the AL, but I'm pretty sure the Marlins playing the NL. That's huh. that's, that's a good one. That's, that's, that, yeah, but the Rays play in the AL. See, it's a good one too. Aha. Anyway, um, that is a good also, that's, that, that is news to me that I did not know you grew up rooting for the Yankees. I did. I, I, I grew up going to a lot of Yankees games. Um, I went to the World Series and they closed out the Phillies against uh, Pedro Martinez. I, I did grow up rooting for the Yankees, but, uh, you know, as, 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 as the years went on and once A-Rod and Jeter and Cano, once, once they all, once that team, you just, once, once, once they, they were out, once of, out of contention, I jumped ship. But you jump ship from the Yankees well, to the Pirates, I, so obviously you didn't really care about winning. I had, my family's from Pittsburgh. I was rude for the Pirates, but believe it or not, when I was younger, I was a bigger Yankees fan than Pirates fan. But then once that once that team in, of '09, you know, left and fell apart, I it was, I'm fully a Pirates fan now. Back a little backstory. Yeah, and I guess we're actually all going to take separate routes. I'm giving Jose Abreu my AL MVP. I think what the Chicago White Sox did this season was just incredible. I think much like Houston, they're very young and ahead of schedule. I think in the next one or two years, they're going to be a World Series contender, and Abreu just carried them over the top this year. He's my MVP. Anyway, guys, um, so those are our MVP predictions for baseball. Um, again, at when this podcast is um, published, I'm sure the MVP votes will have been already announced, but... But you can see how we did. One one of us will be right because we're at least for the American League because we're we're split down DJ. the middle. Anyway, um, just moving on to the uh, NBA for uh, a quick minute or two. I know it's the off season, but wow, is it a very short off season? The the NBA just announced recently that they're planning to resume training camps on December first. Regular season will tip off on December twenty second. Keep in mind that the Lakers and Heat played their final uh, championship game 
I think October 11th, sometime early mid-October, which means the regular season will begin roughly two, two and a half months or so after um, the season ended. That is unprecedented, not only for basketball, for all four major sports. Um, I, that's a gap of approximately, I want to say, 72 or so, so days in the, the previous uh, shortest gap between I know two two seasons ended in the major four sports was closer to 97 days for the NHL and I think 2013-14. Anyway, um, it's clearly a very short offseason. LeBron James actually commented recently that he was going to kind of cherry cherry pick the uh, first half of the season because he's gonna uh, um, kind of leave leave the uh, responsibility up to Anthony Davis. But I think that's honestly, you know, even though he was kind of joking, I think it's more so telling of the uh, the fact that these players are not gonna get you know a lot of rest again. I know they're in very good shape, they're 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 always conditioning. But you're telling these players to come back from not only are they coming back on a short on a short rest, but they were just in a bubble in Orlando for like three months. So that's just another kind of factor to you know to consider when um, looking at how difficult this transition is. That being said, you know I'm sure basketball fans are you know very excited to see the season coming back. Um, it's going to be actually you know not very short shorter of a season than normal, even though. It's weird, weird timing. I think they announced a 72-game season. Um, man, I I still like the Lakers this year. I know LeBron's playing in a kind of a short off season. He's, he's probably he's getting up there in age. He's around 30, 35, 36 now. LeBron's still the best player in the league. I can I can have this argument another day. The Lakers dominated in the Orlando bubble, and I think that can, success will continue. And I think Anthony Davis is, has a real real shot to win. The league's MVP this season. You know, Anthony Davis. You know, is in his prime. Even though LeBron is, you know, still great, he's kind of past his prime. Anthony Davis is in the prime years of his career. He was a star, a star in uh, New Orleans, and he is, he is evolving into a legend in Los Angeles. I think he's going to, when it's all said and done, he's going to be in the in the uh, the same sentence as you know Kareem, uh, Magic Johnson, LeBron, Jerry West, some of those Laker legends. Anthony Davis, you know, already proved it, you know, this first season winning a championship and posting insane numbers throughout the playoffs in the NBA Finals. Um, Lakers are my pick to repeat. I know we haven't seen a repeat in the, in the NBA, I guess, since the Warriors, since Golden State Warriors, so not too long ago. Um, but the, the Lakers, the new Warriors, they're going to, you know, I know they're kind of not the same type of dynasty, dynasty as Golden State, but they're going to kind of be the, the star team in the league uh, for the next two to three years. Um, anyway, guys, you know, uh, I know we just want to touch on the NBA quickly, but what are your thoughts on the season? Uh, I know the draft's coming up. Uh, Jordan, you said there's some news about the New York Knicks as well. Is that correct? Yes, there is. Well, just before I get into the Knicks, I think that one of the themes of the 2020-21 season is going to be, and I don't like this word, but I have to say it, load management. I think it is soft and so anti-1990s but that's the reality of the game you you know you said it just in October you had the Lakers and Heat playing in the finals so you can't expect LeBron to you know give you 44 45 minutes right out of the gate I know this season's been shortened to 72 games but I think especially those in the playoffs you know as well as everybody else they're going to rest their superstars much longer than usual because those guys haven't had a chance to rest their body like they normally would. You know, except for the few teams that didn't go to the bubble, like my Knicks. Load management is going to be one of the keys to the season. And actually, Jack, um, 
I don't know if you want to pull up the Knicks odds since you're my betting man, but what I'm going to do probably in a week, I'm going to take out 20 bucks, maybe even 50, and put it on the Knicks to win the title. Yeah, look, look. look what? And they probably, they probably have the second worst odds, but you know what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> get, why not? Rich. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I've touched on this before, my uh, Cincinnati Bearcats college football pick. I put down 20 bucks to win 4,000. Granted, you'd probably, you'd probably get more with the yeah. Knicks. I, I, could look some, I could look it up here quickly. Actually, yeah, while you get that up, I want to touch on a, a draft point. This is something I think SNY was first to report. As I'm sure the listeners know, the Knicks have the eighth pick in the draft currently. However, they're in talks with Golden State to acquire the second pick. I think along with the Bulls and maybe one other team. It seems like uh, it seems like the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves are pretty set on keeping the number one pick unless a superstar comes up. Golden State seems more open to getting that two pick where the Mets excuse me, the Knicks can slot into that, you know, Anthony Edwards, LaMelo ball kind of slot. I don't necessarily know if it's worth it. I'm a very big advocate of keeping all your draft picks. I hate what James Dolan does and, you know, the front office and how they get rid of all their picks for Bargnani and Eddie Curry. The list goes on and on. They've made some horrible choices. I think this year, though, if you can get the second pick in the draft, unless you're giving up, Two or three first rounders, I'd probably. Because as Jordan, as you finish that point, I have pulled up the odds here, and the odds to win the twenty twenty one NBA championship. Also, the worst odds are the Charlotte Hornets. They are plus ten thousand. The the Knicks are tied with a slew of teams. They're tied with the Magic, Kings, Spurs, Wizards, Pistons, and Cavs at plus eight thousand. So a hundred dollar bet wins eight k. Jack, I don't know what betting odds you're looking at. I'm actually on NewJersey.com now on their betting section, and the odds are a lot, a lot different, I guess, for for this website. You have the the team with the worst odds, the Phoenix Suns, at plus thirty thousand. They're tied with the Cavaliers and the Hornets, and then the New York Knicks are plus twenty thousand, which means Jordan, on your on the bet you mentioned, let's say you put fifty dollars down, that, that means you would win ten thousand uh, dollars for a New York Knicks championship win. I hate to break it to you, man, but not only not only are the Knicks not winning the championship, not only are they not making the playoffs, they're also going to end up with a with a lottery pick, and you know probably yeah, get the, seventh or eighth pick. These game. are uh, these are FanDuel odds, so I guess they're all, they're different everywhere. Got it, got it. No, but I don't think by any means the Knicks are going to win a championship for a yeah, just very have a little fun with it. Time. Have a little but fun. You know what? Yeah, just have a little fun with it. Jordan, I know you're having fun with it. You know, maybe get rich out of it. Why not? Jordan, the Mets have a better chance of winning the next, like, five World Series than the Knicks have of winning the championship this year. Yeah, so anyways, just a transition away from the NBA as we start to talk about football here. I do think this will be one of the most active free agencies we've had in a long time because it's only a month and two days long. Um, you know, this isn't going to be the decision with LeBron James, Kevin Durant, etc. Well, there are no real marquee names on the market. I do think with a, a faster-moving free agency period, this is going to be very exciting. Anyways, Jack, you want to take us into football? Absolutely, guys. We had a, a big weekend, NFL and college. You know, the Steelers survived by the skin of their teeth. They were losing in Dallas 19-9, where a stadium where Big Ben is, is not, he's not had good luck there in the past. Uh, but 145 yards in the fourth quarter to two touchdowns lead the Steelers to victory. They're 8-0, staying two games ahead of the Ravens. 
and over to college, the, the biggest game of the weekend, actually NBC had a, a record number of viewers for a Notre Dame game in, in 15 or 16 years. Notre Dame shocks, I wouldn't I won't say shocks, but takes down the number one ranked Clemson Tigers, 47 to 40 in double overtime. And Notre Dame now, their path is clear to the college football playoff. Uh, just don't get killed by Clemson in the ACC championship down the road and you're in. Jack, I want to talk about how this kind of shakes up the uh, layout of the college football playoff. So right now, as it stands, we have one Alabama, two Notre Dame, three Ohio State, four Clemson. If that stands, which I don't think it will because I agree that Clemson will win in the ACC championship, if it stands, um, you would have Clemson playing Alabama in the semifinals, which most would have predicted to be the championship game. That would be super interesting if it stands that way because you would have I think either Ohio State or uh, Notre Dame, either of them would be, either of them would definitely be underdogs against Bama or Clemson in the championship game. That being said, I think I think uh, Clemson will win um, in the ACC championship against Notre Dame anyway, so it's kind of a moot point. Um, but do you think Notre Dame, you know, has a chance to kind of uh, improve upon this, their success again? I know Trevor Lawrence was out; they barely won. It was at home. In a normal game, they probably would have lost by two touchdowns. Do you think Notre Dame, you know, is for real this season? You know, the last time they were really this good was probably, what, 2012 with Monte Teo. Um, but do you think Notre Dame, you know, can kind of beat, the, beat these SEC, ACC kind of powerhouses or or no? Yeah, well, look, these, these the way it is right now, these top four teams, is are they're not going to stand because Clemson will not be the four seed. It, like we said, if they beat Notre Dame later down the road, they'll be the two or the three. And if they lose to Notre Dame again, they're out. So there's no way that Clemson is going to be the number four seed. And going, yes, an interesting question about Notre Dame is, uh, yeah, they showed me that they are the real deal on Saturday. We talk about Lawrence not playing, but DJ, I'm not going to even try to pronounce his, his last name, but Clemson's back at quarterback, DJ Ulungalele, I believe it is. Uh, I think it's a pretty yeah, good Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Uh, he had 400-plus he, 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 he yards. He had three touchdowns, didn't turn the ball over once. I don't know how, I don't know what much more Trevor Lawrence would have done. I don't know if Trevor Lawrence would have had 400 yards, three touchdowns, no turnovers, and Notre Dame put up 47 points. Ian Book looked phenomenal. The receivers stepped up. Avery Davis stepped up. Their running game torched Clemson. Notre Dame really exposed them. I mean, it shouldn't even gone to overtime. They had the ball up 20 to 10 on the Clemson 20 in the second quarter. They really should have put him away. Uh, yeah, this Notre Dame team is is for real. Do I think they get Clemson back later down the road? No, because of the revenge factor, I think will be too much. But uh, Notre Dame, yeah, they're for real. If they get into the playoff, they could beat anybody. Jack, I think that's a good point about uh, Notre Dame. You know, I think they really showed out against Clemson. That being said, I think, as usual, I think this is Alabama's year. I know last year they had a, they had a mediocre season. And by mediocre, I mean they lost two games and still won a bowl game. Um, they've been dominant you know, from start to finish. And I think another another thing to take into consideration is how many games are being postponed, you know, due to the continuing coronavirus. Um, as you saw this, uh, this past week, you had the Texas A&M game postponed, you had the Georgia game postponed, the Bama game actually postponed as well. Um, so, that, I mean, that's really going to play uh, a factor in, um, you know, in determining playoff playoff teams, perhaps. I know, switch, switching over to the NFL for, for a quick second, I know that they just signed a kind of a resolution to expand the playoff field from 14 teams to 16 teams in the case of postponements. I'm not sure if college would do the same thing, but I, I would have to imagine that's going to 
plays some factor when you have, you know, a team like Oregon who's going to play. Again, I know we discussed this before, but Oregon's going to end up playing, you know, five games. And then another another team like uh, Alabama or Clemson or whoever is going to, you know, play double the amount of games. I just feel like there's so many logistics, you know, that go into the playoff decision. And I feel like the amount of games you're playing in such a crazy season kind of has to be taken into consideration ultimately. Yeah, you know, it definitely does, but Oregon has has no chance in the sense they're playing five, six games against cream puff teams. Uh, but you look, you look at a team like Alabama, having a couple of games postponed will not affect them in the in the slightest. I mean, I've touched on Alabama so many times. Uh, yeah, I, I think they're the favorite. You have an offense that has scored over 38 points for the last 15 or 16 games dating back to last year. You have you have John Mechie and you have Najee Harris and Mac Jones, who I think is better in the system than Tua. You you have the defense has only allowed twenty four points once, and that was to Ole Miss when they just beat Mississippi State forty one nothing. They beat Tennessee, I, I think it was forty nine to ten or something like that. I mean, this team is killing teams. They had six hundred yards on Georgia. Uh, having a game postponed or two games postponed uh, won't affect Alabama in the slightest. I mean, this this offense is a well oiled machine who is going to be the number one seed in the college football playoff, regardless of how many games Sure, yeah, and like I said, I think, you know, this is this is the uh, the Crimson Tides year, and I feel like they win every other year, or, or every year for that matter. Um, so not really uh, different this year. Anyway, um, another team I wanted to bring up, because I know they're playing really well and probably have no real shot of making the playoff, but no, uh, regardless, definitely a surprise story in college football. What do you think of BYU? They're currently 8-0, and also playing as an independent, um, you know, Similar to Notre Dame, even though Notre Dame is uh, playing as an ACC team this year. But anyway, uh, BYU, uh, Jack, what do you think? I know, again, won't, won't make the playoff, but um, what, what are your thoughts Look, on that? BYU, led by, led by Zach Wilson, who's a serious Heisman, Heisman candidate. I mean, he's right up there with everybody else. You know, we talk about the Mac Joneses of the world and Trevor Lawrence's of the world and uh, the Kyle Trask's of the world, what he's doing down in the swamp for uh, the Gators. But no, Zach Wilson's a real deal. BYU is a very good team who's blowing teams out. They showed me that they're for real when they went into Boise State, who was ranked number 19 in the country at the time, and beat them 45-3. The issue for BYU and similar an issue for Cincinnati, teams like that who are 7-8 and eight right now, is Texas A&M, a team with one loss who won't be playing in the conference championship, you know, in case Alabama loses a couple times, is Texas A&M is 5 right now and won't play in their conference championship. And right now the committee is telling me that they'd rather have a one-loss A&M instead of a team like BYU or Cincinnati, which I disagree with. But, you know, according to the pollsters right now, that really hurts those teams like Cincinnati and BYU. Yeah, I, I think this is kind of a precedent that the the, uh, the pollsters have set. I mean, we saw it a few years ago with uh, Central Florida when they went 12 or 13-0, and 0 and um, they ended up beating Auburn in a bowl game, but they were, they were not ever considered... Uh, for play- playoff selection, even though they were the only undefeated team in the country, so I think that's con- going to continually be a problem for these group group of five or independent teams. I mean, there's a, there's always going to be bias towards you know the power five. I I believe that you know Cincinnati and BYU should be ranked above uh, A and M. One loss A and M. I know they're in the SEC, but there's always going to be again a bias against these um, kind of non power five teams, and I don't know if there's a way around that. You know, at least in the current landscape of college football. Look, these teams are doing all they can. You have Cincinnati, you, they're beating SMU by 30. They're beating Memphis by 39. They're beating Houston by 30. They're scoring like 40 points a game. They gotta, they're got they shutting teams out. 
they're doing all they can, but it is unfortunate. And you know, it's a team like Florida, who's number six right now. They'll get they'll get taken care of when Alabama beats them later down the road. But what these teams don't want, teams like BYU and Cincinnati, what they don't want is Clemson to beat Notre Dame later down the road. They want Notre Dame to beat Clemson again because that knocks Clemson out and that opens the door for a four seed. If Clemson beats Notre Dame again, these teams like Cincinnati and BYU, these guys, you know, seven, eight, nine range, won't have much of a chance. Notre Dame beating Clemson this past Saturday hurt a lot of those teams. Yeah, like you said, I mean, I think it's it's really going to come down to that Clemson Notre Dame ACC championship game that's going to have so many implications for the rest of the playoff because if uh, if Notre Dame does win and Clemson you know gets knocked out that opens the door for BYU um, for uh, opens the door for BYU for Cincinnati and then you might have a team like I'm trying to think Indiana maybe um, again probably not but these are kind of um, underdog underdog teams that kind of might sneak in anyway that kind of moves 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 me to my next point I just wanted to bring up. What do you think about Indiana this season? I mean, historically, at least recently, they've been they've been off uh, football, man. And um, I mean, coming out of the gate this season at three, you know, they beat Penn, a ranked Penn State team in overtime, um, and then they beat a ranked Michigan team um, by over uh, by a, over a touchdown. Uh, do you think Indiana, you know, again, probably will make the playoff or definitely will make the playoff? But do you think this is a team that you know is is for real this season? We'll see what Indiana is made of when they go to Ohio State later down the road. The, the win against Penn State looked good at the time, but in hindsight, you know, Penn State just lost to Maryland by 20 points, and Indiana needed a two-point conversion, which, was, which wasn't good, by the way. That, his, he was down, and they called, it, he, they called it in. So Indiana should have lost that game to Penn State by a point, and, but, you know, they didn't. They escaped with the win, and, you know, Penn State's 0-3. Uh, Michigan lost to Michigan State, who just lost to Iowa by by forty last Saturday. I do. I think Indiana's fraud. I mean, they're playing well. It's nice to see them at three and zero in top ten. But their real test will come when they play at Columbus later down the road. And you know, if they don't get blown out, yeah, they're the real deal. Maybe a New Year's Six bowl game. But I don't see Indiana hanging with Ohio State, and I don't really see them anywhere near the playoffs. I I could maybe see a Wisconsin in the playoffs over them. You know, if Wisconsin were to make that Big Ten championship and keep it close with Ohio State. But I, I don't see a team like Indiana in the playoff. I, I think they'll be exposed by Justin Fields and the Buckeyes later down the road. Yeah, no, Hopefully not, but that's, that's, that's my thought. I agree with you, Jack. I mean, Ohio State, as we all know, they are for real. And I, I did mention earlier that if they got into the playoff, um, that they would you know, get destroyed by Alabama or Clemson. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, you know, to reconsider that. Ohio State, I think they are up there with Bama and Clemson as the kind of the top three powerhouses in the league. I know that they're not maybe in the uh, in a very competitive conference because as as we've kind of seen this season the Big Ten is definitely not as competitive as usual but Big Ten is still power five and they're still blowing out their opponents um so I think you know I think Ohio State if they get in the playoff um they, they have every opportunity to win uh as Clemson and or and or Bama does um and just one other team I wanted to mention uh I think a team I brought up a week or two as well uh really good really good you know kind of feel feel good story in college football this season Coastal Carolina, man, they are currently seven and zero, and I know they're playing in the Sun Belt, but they're winning all their games, man, by by a ton. They just recently won against Georgia State, fifty one nothing, and this last week against uh, Southern Alabama, twenty three to six. And again, I know they're not playing, you know, ranked teams by any means, but they're ranked sixteen in the poll now. Um, do you think this is a team that could, you know, maybe get a bowl win? I mean, maybe a New Year's Six bowl if they, um, if if they are the G five rep- rep- representative somehow. Well, they'll play in a New Year's Six Bowl. I, I just, 
I don't think they can get a win if the Power 5 team that they play cares to show up and beat them. I mean, we, we saw UCF play Auburn a couple years back, and UCF beat them. We all thought Auburn was going to kill them. Auburn, in my opinion, didn't really care to show up and play them. And then, you know, later, the following year, UCF plays LSU, and LSU had a sense of urgency and mauled UCF. So I think if Coastal plays a team like Wisconsin or a team like Georgia in a New Year's Six Bowl, a team like Florida, if those big Power 5 schools care to show up and beat Coastal Carolina, they will beat Coastal Carolina by a lot. But if they don't really care to show up and play in a New Year's Six Bowl against Coastal Carolina, maybe Coastal Carolina can get it done. But uh, it, it just, it's a matter of the sense of urgency with these big Absolutely, guys. Absolutely, yeah. That's what I, it comes down absolutely, to. Absolutely, Jack. And I think it's just, you know, always a cool, kind of good feel-good story. We also have uh, Marshall this season, you know, playing uh, playing very well for a uh, kind of a low-level conference team. But just one other quick point I want to make, going back to our uh, earlier point about cool mascots in, uh, in college uh, sports. Do you know the mascot for uh, for Coastal? Yeah, the, the, ch- the Chanticleers, Chanticleers, I believe you pronounce it. Apparently, it is a, uh, it's a large bird, I think. Um, but, yeah... I'm really interested in you know, who who's coming up with these mascot names? You got the banana slugs, you got the uh, the gauchos, you got the chanteliers, but then you also have like, you know, you have like the Missouri Tigers or the Auburn Tigers, like you know something simple. So, um, I actually I saw somewhere on uh, somewhere online maybe Twitter it was a uh, it was a it was a bracket for like college mascots with like you know the craziest mascots. So I think you know I think you know the finals would probably be like the banana slugs against the. Uh, Chanteliers, I think that would that would probably rival uh, Clemson against uh, Bama in football. Oh, of course, yeah. I, I'd probably personally take the uh, the uh, banana slugs, but yeah, that would be a, that'd be a good matchup. But no, I and mean, it, it's awesome. It's it's awesome to see these. I mean, they're not going anywhere. Maybe again, like like, like bowls against big time schools. But impressive is uh, Liberty too. Liberty's beaten two ACC schools. You know, Syracuse and Virginia Tech. They beat Vatech down in Lane Stadium in Blacksburg on a game winning fifty one yard field goal. I mean, it's things like that that are pretty awesome. And they're playing NC State in a couple of weeks. You know, if they can rattle off three ACC wins. Uh, yeah, Jack. You know, I uh, I think it's pretty cool to see these kind of uh, these these non-power five teams making a name for making a name for themselves in the college in the uh, FBS. Um, I mean, the thing about college football is we kind of know who the final two or three teams will be, which I guess kind of takes some of the fun away, um, as opposed to you know college basketball. Where you have March Madness and you kind of you know see more upsets. College football is kind of kind of goes more chalk and you kind of know what's going to happen. But I think it's still a cool story again to you know to see the Coastals and the Marshalls and the Liberties you know to kind of make a name for themselves and um, kind of make a fun season out of this otherwise unpredictable, crazy um, season with you know COVID. Um, but, yeah, it is a great story, but, you know, ultimately, there's been a lot of debate on whether to expand the field to eight teams, you know, or whatever, which I disagree with, because I think most fans ultimately do want to see those three or four best teams play each other at the end of the year, which is what college football is all about. And, you know, going back to a point, or going back to a aforementioned Ohio State, a team that is being overlooked by Alabama and Clemson, they got Notre Dame at number two after their impressive win. Ohio State, you have Justin Fields, a dynamic offense, and I mean, he, he threw four incompletions last game. And they also have the best defense. You know, Ryan Day is a very defensive-oriented coach. They have the, probably the best defense out of those top four teams as well. The Ohio State is a very, very scary team going forward and a team that could absolutely win the whole thing this year. Absolutely, and I think this kind of reminds me of um, the first season of the college football playoff in 2014 when 
Ohio State entered the field as the four seed, so so the lowest seed, and they actually ended up winning the championship. They beat Alabama in the semifinals. Do you, do you recall who they beat in the championship game that year? Yeah, they beat uh, Alabama uh, with Amari Cooper it, and, and in they the beat Oregon. That's right. And then they and they beat Oregon. Was they that was Oregon. that Marcus? Was that Marcus Mariota? They, with with Marcus Mariota, yeah, Cardell Jones beat uh, Marcus. Yeah, Mariota. so so my point is, you know, Ohio State, even if they're a three four seed going into the series playoff, they proved they can do it before by beating Bama and the other heavy in Oregon, uh, the other heavyweights. Um, so don't count them out. A game I want to bring up here this weekend before I want to, before I give my lock of the century on Friday night. A game I want to bring up this weekend is is Notre Dame at Boston College. A lot of people are going to look at that and be like, yeah, Notre Dame's going to destroy them. They just beat Clemson. Notre Dame, I have a friend who goes there, by the way. Uh, and he, uh, you, know, you see that scene when they stormed the field last week? You know, they, they beat Clemson 47-40 in the most dramatic of dramatic type of games. Knocked off number one. You move up to number two. And now you're going into Boston College, a, a team with Phil Jerkovic at quarterback, who transferred from Notre Dame because Notre Dame pretty much gave him the boot. I mean, he was Ian Book's backup, and Notre Dame pretty much chose Ian Book over Phil Jerkovich. They told him, you know, get out of here, go somewhere else. Now he's a starter for Boston College. I'm sensing a mix of a hangover game for Notre Dame and, you know, a game that Phil Jerkovich would really want to play well against his old foes. I think that Boston College keeps this game close. It's a 13.5-point spread. I, Notre Dame's going to win the game. But Boston College, I believe, will keep this game close and fight hard and, and cover that 13.5 yeah, points. Yeah, I, Jacques, I really like that pick as well. As, as we saw in a few weeks ago, um, even though it was against a Trevor Lawrence-less Clemson team, Boston College played very well against Clemson. Um, I think, you know, they kind of proved they can keep up with the heavyweights. Once again, it definitely should be acknowledged that, you know, that uh, Trevor Lawrence was not playing. But the fact that they still almost beat Clemson regardless, very impressive. I like Boston College getting 13.5 points too. I think they'll keep it with it. I think yeah, they'll I mean, keep it with it eight or nine points. I, I agree. I mean, Lawrence didn't play against Notre Dame either. So, I mean, but, but Boston College, I think, will keep this game close. They're not going to win. They're not going to win. Notre Dame's going to beat them. Ian Book will pull it out in the end. But uh, Boston College, I think, will keep this game for close. Sure. Anyway, I want to hear. I want to hear what these lock lock of the century is uh, for Jack for Jack right. So, so guys, as you know, I've, I've as I've said in this podcast, the first couple episodes, I am. Uh, I'm a gambling man, a controlled gambling man, but mainly for the football season, I'm a gambling man. I don't have the online app. I, I make the trip to FanDuel, so I'm not a total addict. Um, here's the deal. So my lock of the century, I've never been more confident about a pick. I, I've taken this team four times this year. I'm four for four. Is the Cincinnati Bearcats playing on Friday night, hosting East Carolina. They're minus 27 and a half. ESPN2, and Cincinnati guys, they were number five in the country. They beat Houston by 30, and they dropped two spots in the polls to number seven. We just said before, A&M's now five, Florida six. So since he's won their last three games by more than 28 points in each one, and they drop. So we know what Luke Fickle and the, and the Bearcats are saying in the locker room right now is, I guess 30 points is not enough. We got to go out and win by 40 or 50. I mean, East Carolina's one and five, Tulane beat him by 17. UCF beaten by 23, Georgia Southern beaten by 20, Cincinnati is just mauling teams, and there's a difference between wanting to maul teams and having to maul teams. I mean, Cincinnati has to run it up, because in Cincinnati's eyes, they have a playoff chance, and in order to keep that chance, you got to beat teams like East Carolina by 40 to 50 points. 
I think that Cincinnati covers 27 and a half, you know, four touchdowns, rather easy in this one. I'd hammer the Bearcats. I think Desmond Ritter, will, he'll, he'll throw with his arm. He'll run with his legs. He'll, he'll kill you both ways. This top 10 defense won't let ECU cross midfield. I think Cincinnati wins this game 52 to 7, something like that. A total Bearcats blowout to impress the pollsters on primetime on Friday night. Jack, I, I, I love Cincinnati this season. I think they're, you know, definitely have an outside shot of the of the, uh, the college football playoff. But t- 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 taking a team that's 27.5 point favorites as your lock of the century is one of the boldest claims I've heard um, from, a, uh, from a better in a while. Lock of the century, I'm telling you, book it. All right, and look, I know East Carolina is one and five, and you know, really playing poorly in the in the uh, American Conference. But Cincinnati, I mean, twenty seven and a half points, man. As your lock, I mean, look, I think you'll be right, but uh, I just think that's you're giving up four touchdowns for a again. I know they're really good, but for a G five team against another conference rival, or rather a conference opponent, I think that's a bold again. I'm kind of repeating myself here, but that's a bold claim. Um, but hey, what do you say? Fifty-two. You said fifty-two to seven. We'll say. I think fifty-two to seven. I mean, they know Luke Fickle and those guys know. Now they dropped in the polls two spots, as I just said before. They have to maul this team uh-huh. on national TV on Friday night. I mean, if if you lose, if you beat this team by less than than thirty points. That shows the committee that you don't deserve to be in the playoff. I mean, you you have to beat East Carolina. 45 or 52 to 7. I, I agree, and I think um, I'm kind of, you know, kind of just going in circles here, but I think um, I think Cincinnati will, will win big, but I, I, I know myself, and I know, you know, whenever I say, oh, this game is a lock, this game, no chance they win. I always lose, so we'll see. <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, hopefully they lock it up here on Friday night. Absolutely. Um, um but any other uh, any other college games of note, Jack? Before we kind of uh, wrap this up today, today. No, I mean uh, that's really it. Notre Dame, Boston College. You got Michigan, Wisconsin at night. I think Wisconsin gets the job done there. You know their playoff hopefuls, and uh, you know again, Cincy versus ECU. Cincy looks to uh, impress the pollsters. You know, stay top seven. Florida Gators big win against Georgia last week. Kyle Trask had a big day. Uh, Florida, you know, in, in a good playoff spot. Um, playing more coming up this weekend, but uh, no, that's that's really it for college football. For sure, for and weekend. I actually just realized we kind of neglected talking about uh, the NFL. I know we did earlier, but just one game I want to highlight. I think this is um, probably the NFC Championship preview, guys. I'm surprised it's not on national TV. Washington, the Washington football team is playing at the Detroit Lions. If you tell me that is not a, uh, a preview of a January playoff game, then you must be crazy. I can't wait for that game, Alex. I'm sure I'll be, you know, running down my stairs at 12:59 and throwing on my NFL Sunday ticket and turning that game right on to see, you know, Matthew Stafford against that D line. I mean, that's the, that's the, uh, it's the matchup of the week right here. You know, football team against the Lions. I, I can't wait to see it. You know, Kenny Galladay's playing. Hopefully, he's healthy. Yeah, Kyle, Kyle Allen, Terry McLaurin's looking beautiful. I, I can't wait to watch this game. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Jack. The uh, the Lions in uh, Washington. I mean, really, two of the premier teams in football. Um, I mean, after all, they are called the football team, so you know they are the top team in the league just just by their name. And you got the Steelers and the Bengals. You know, uh, Steelers having some COVID issues. Joe Burrow against this defensive line. Eight and O Steelers will be an interesting game. Absolutely, you know. But on a on a more serious note, um, 
Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Steelers, man. I mean, I know they have, um, they have some doubters, but I really think, you know, I honestly, I think they can go 15 and one. I mean, maybe 16 and all is probably reach. They have a couple of tough games left, but this team is surprising expectations. And this team has been a dynasty for, for years. I think they're, what are they? This is, this is probably my lock of the week. I think they're favored by six and a half points. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but six and a half points at home against Cincinnati. I think Pittsburgh wins by 21 in this game. If, if Ben Roethlisberger plays, which all signs are pointing to him playing, uh, yeah, Pittsburgh should win this game uh, 35-10, 35-14, something like that. I think they rattle the rookie Burrow. No Dupree, Watt, Tewitt, Hayward will just be too much for a depleted O-line. I don't think Mixon will find much success off injury on the ground. Burrow will have no time to throw, and I think Big Ben, when he calls his own plays, he throws the ball around, he's one of the most accurate, you know, the best gunslingers in football when, he's, when the handcuffs are off of him. And uh, I think he calls his own plays and takes care of Cincinnati early, throwing the ball over the field. Slew of receivers, Juju, Deontay, Claypool, all had good days against Dallas when they, when they wanted to, when they stepped up in the end. Uh, they should take care of Cincinnati early. And, and, you know, this game against Dallas is, was a wake-up call, in my opinion. You know, you, you play slow for three quarters, and you just beat Tennessee and Baltimore. Now you go into Dallas who with their third-string quarterback. You were sleeping for three quarters. But what this shows the Steelers is not take, don't take anybody lightly. I think they come out and step on Cincinnati's throat from Absolutely. the start. One other game I just wanted to highlight, which, um, again, unlike my Lions-Washington game uh, game preview, which was very much a, uh, a satire, I think that is going to be the worst uh, worst game of the week. Um, I think the Buffalo-Arizona game is going to be a really good game. You know, two up-and-coming teams kind of overachieving expect- expectations by a bit. Two of the most dynamic quarterbacks in the league in the league. Josh Allen and Kyler Murray. I think this game is going to be like 35-32 either way. It's going to be a shootout um, in primetime, you know, out west and in, uh, in Glendale, Arizona. Um, I think Buffalo is going to win. Um, but like I said, I think it's going to be close. I think Josh Allen puts up a monster game, three, four touchdowns. Kyler Murray, um, you know, probably going to put in a rushing touchdown as well. But um, Buffalo, yeah, Buffalo, Arizona, these two teams – I think they can both go deep into the playoffs. I mean, I think they both have a great chance of making the playoffs. Definitely Buffalo will probably win the East, and Arizona will probably end up as a wild card. Um, but don't be surprised to see either team, you know, win a game or two in the uh, in the playoffs come January. Yeah, this, this, I'm looking forward to this game, too. I mean, I do have Stefan Diggs in fantasy. That, that's probably a large reason why I'll be watching it. But uh, what, what, what Arizona showed me last week was – they are struggling on the defensive side of the ball uh, in, in several areas. I mean, Tua, and not taking nothing away from Tua and the Dolphins, I mean, I'd love to see them at 5-3 and three right now. But uh, they scored 34 points on this Cardinals defense. Buffalo is a team where if Josh Allen's on, you know, throwing the ball and with his legs, he's hitting Stephon Diggs, who leads the league in receiving yards, and, you know, John Brown and Cole Beasley and all these weapons, it's going to be really, really, really tough for – a struggling Arizona D to stop them, and you know flip flip the switch flip the side flip sides of the ball here. Arizona also is a good offense, but Buffalo's defense is much better than Arizona's. So I mean I I I think it will be a, it's a, just a tough game for Arizona to win this game. Uh, I'm taking Buffalo in this game as well, but it should be a fun game. You know, always fun to watch two young quarterbacks go sure, at it. Sure, I actually uh, kind of want to transition here. I want to throw this over to Jordan. I know he's um, been kind of on the sidelines for the past. A uh, handful of handful of minutes, but Jordan, what are your thoughts on the Jets oh, um, winning a game in the second half of the season? They almost came close against New England, um, blew a ten point lead in the fourth quarter. 
So right now they sit at 0-9. They only have seven more games to go to make history, uh, to be the only the third team ever to go 0-16. I think it's going to happen. I think they're going to lose out. What do you, what do you think? A come, as a, uh, as a Jets fan. Jets possible way you could have lost a game. It's the most Mets, Jets, and Knicks thing that could have happened. I thought they could have won one, maybe two games. I think I called, what, the, the Carolina game maybe coming up in a few weeks. But uh, after what just happened a couple days ago, I'm going to say they're 0-16. Uh, Jordan, remember you said on the podcast week one that the Jets are going to be oh, that was the game I know, Russell Wilson my, and my DK bad. Metcaff and Tyler Lockett and the, well, the, you know, probably crazier the best things that happened, the Seattle Seahawks. But I think after this <laughs> New England loss, I'm uh, go against my word and say 0-16. Jordan, Jordan, I, 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 Jordan, I think your prediction there uh, almost rivals my Lions Washington NFC Championship game game preview as as equally ridiculous. Guys, here's my here's my opinion. The New York Jets for the first three quarters of that primetime game, they looked really they good. Did. You know, Joe, Joe Flacco, he was hitting Brashad Perryman. He was hitting the Denzel Mims, who's going to be good for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, their defense was playing well. Well, that's not the only thing the Patriots uh, This loss but... deflates them. It really does deflate them. And, and I, I was pulling for them late. This this loss really does hurt them. I do believe, though, that the Jets, I think it's week 14, 15, somewhere around there. I think the Jets beat Baker Mayfield and we, the Cleveland Browns. Jack, Jack, they go, they go one it's on 15. December 27th, week 16. I think the Jets win that. I think the Jets beat the Browns later on in the season. The Jets showed Joe Joe Flacco showed me a lot of promise in, in that uh, in that game against the Pats. Yeah, but he's not going to stay there when Darnold comes back. No, I, I, my, I'm just I'm just saying that he's good enough to win a game this season. I think he's good Jack. enough to win a game. He's Joe Flacco. <laughs> if he goes anywhere else, he'll become Fitzmagic again. Jack, I just I find it funny you, you talk about Joe Flacco showing you a lot of promise. You're talking about. Hey, him I, like I'm in, I'm in a lot of promise to maybe win a game. Yeah, but look at all, all the guys the Jets have had like that, whether it's, you know, if it's Patrick or McGowan <laughs> or whatever. It's, as soon as they jump ship and go to a different team, you know, Fitzpatrick becomes Fitzmagic. So. Well, no, no, no. Joe Flacco, wherever he, if he happens to go somewhere next as well, I mean, he's, he's still washed. He won't be any better than he is now. Question for you guys. Uh, I got asked this question recently. Is Joe Flacco a Hall of Famer? No. 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 He's a good is, player. Is, He's not a he, Hall of Famer. Is Joe Flacco elite? No. No. He, he, he won one Super Bowl, and granted, he was great that year. But if he didn't have that defense with those with those beasts on like, every single position playing defense, you had your Ray Lewis, Haloti Nada, just animals on hey. defense. It's a nice they, story. They, like uh, the next generation isn't going to be talking about Joe Flacco. They they they, they had they had uh, Ed Reed also, right? Yeah, they, they had probably the best defense in the league, but one of the best defenses in the history of the league. Joe Flacco was carried. Granted, he played great, but he was carried, uh, similar to when Peyton Manning won with the Broncos, carried by the defense. And he had defense wins Super Bowls, but uh, Joe Flacco. No, yeah, but that, was, that good, was a very he, different Peyton Manning who won. He, you know, that was kind of washed Peyton. That wasn't. That well, was similar. It's, 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 it's similar cases. It's a quarterback being carried by his defense. It's very similar cases. I mean, cases. yeah, but, so, you're, you know, that's, a, what, a top five QB of all time at the end of his career? That's not like No, Joe I know. Flacco that's that's, that's not the argument. Peyton Manning is a Hall of Famer. I'm not arguing. But I'm just saying it's very similar seasons. It's when yeah, Peyton was carried that. by his defense. Flacco was carried by his defense. Uh, it's, it's great to see him win a Super Bowl, but, no, he won't be a Hall of Famer. He had a few good seasons, but he's, he's not elite, not a Hall of Famer. He's good. No. 
that's about it. Um, there's one other question I want to uh, answer or ask rather before we kind of uh, wrap up for week three. Um, out of all the young quarterbacks in the league, league besides Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, because I think they're definitely one two. Um, who do you say is kind of the next superstar in the league? So we got you know just Kyler Murray. Oh, it's, it's um, just a couple of examples, but Metcalf. who would you say again? And, and, and this is outside of Lamar and, uh, and and Mahomes. It's hands down Josh Allen. Hands down Josh Allen. What 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 he did from his when he transitioned from year one to year two, what he did, how he improved was drastic. How he's improving this year, drastic. I mean, he he kills you with every single facet. He is he can he can throw the ball eighty yards down the field. Uh, he can scramble. I mean, he does it all. He's he's mobile. And he's really tough to bring down. He reminds you of Ben Roethlisberger, but a faster Ben Roethlisberger, who's going to be good for a long time. Buffalo's going to be good for a long time. Yeah, Ky- Kyler's good too, but it's uh, it's hands down Josh Allen. Now, Absolutely I got a question. Good. Alex said up-and-coming star. Could it be argued that Josh Allen's already a star? Not yet. He said he no. made a, he made the playoffs once. He's been played in the year for two, league, league for two years. I agree with Dak, and I, I, I always love seeing, you know, these uh, – uh, quarterbacks come out of uh, non-powerhouse conferences or for or programs rather. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but you know Carson Wentz, prime example in North Dakota State. Once again, Josh Allen. Shout out to the Wyoming Cowboys, Mountain West Conference, doing big things. And Josh Allen, you know we've seen guys who early on in their career look like stars, as Jordan sang, and then they falter, get hurt, they fall off the radar. Uh, but Josh Allen, not a star yet, but pretty darn close. And he, uh, I think after. This season, once they make the playoffs, after one more good season next year, Josh Allen will be a star in this league. Uh, yeah, I, I agree, Jack. I mean, I think it's too early to tell. He's in uh, he's in year three of his career. Is that correct? Year three, yeah. He's made the yeah, playoffs so, once. Yeah, so Josh Allen's still he's not he's not a rookie, but he's still so early in his career, and you know he's proving a lot, you know, to those fans up in Orchard Park, New York, around the NFL. But Josh Allen, man, he's thirty years, so much to prove. But I mean, this season, you know. Bills are going to win the division for the first time in 20 plus years. You know, this is a great, uh, great addition to his uh, career resume. A very close second, though, to that to that question, Alex is an up and coming star. You behind Josh Allen? I'm going to say Justin Herbert. Oh, what, I was going to mention what, him. What, what I, I I love what he's doing for the Chargers. What I'm seeing Justin Herbert do right now, I mean, he he should have beaten Drew Brees. His, they were up 24 to three, and his defense let him down. He should have beat Brady. He went toe to toe. His defense let him down in the end. Uh, what he's doing for LA right now is is remarkable. I, I think he's their franchise quarterback. It's already been settled. Um, an interesting matchup: Herbert against Tua this Sunday. Little sense of urgency, maybe. You know, Tua was take, taken one pick before him. Maybe Herbert comes out and wants to prove. You know, you should have taken me. Uh, should be a fun matchup on Sunday. Oh, I George Jack, that's a great great point you mentioned. That that's going to be an amazing game. Just you know, quick side note: I love I love Tua in Miami. I know he's only played two games, but I think he's going to be the future there, at least for the next several years. That first game he played against the Rams didn't show me much because it was the Dolphins' defense who really gave golf problems and stepped up. But this game against the Cardinals, beating Kyler Murray in a shootout out in Glendale, really showed me a lot about, about Tua's character and his poise, and he really, he really did impress me. Too early to tell whether he's the future of the Dolphins, but you know after that game against the Cardinals, we'll see what he can do now against Justin Herbert and the Chargers. But... uh very, very good sign after after winning that game against Kyler Murray. Absolutely. I, I really think Miami is going to give Buffalo a run for their money for the division over the next few years. I know the kind of Buffalo is running away with the NFA, with the AFC East this season, but, I mean, and the Jets, 
no, and the Patriots probably no. I think Buffalo and Miami are going to go back and forth over the next two, three, four years for for the uh, division division title. Yeah, fair assessment. I'd probably still give it to Buffalo most years, but Miami will be right there. Wild card team year in and year out. For sure, for sure. Um, and uh, I think um, I think if you're a Patriots fan, of course you're disappointed, but. If you can take a few bad years for 20 incredible years, I think I would take that trade any day. Belichick even said, look, we paid Cam Newton half a million dollars. We have, mo- we have no money. We-, we sold out and won three Super Bowls. So uh, yeah, the Patriots well, fans, they- they- they've got more than they could have asked for these, these last- this last couple of decades. One, actually, I-, I know I keep saying last point, last point, but one, one other thing I want to say is, do you think the, uh, the Buccaneers' hot start cu- coupled with the Patriots' awful start is more of a testament to Brady or Belichick or both? I think it's definitely more of, uh, I mean, it's tough to talk about this now after the Bucks just got uh, trounced by the Saints, you know, uh, what was it, 38-3. I mean, Brady looked, Brady looked like he was 60. I and mean, he looked like my grandpa out there. Uh, but I think the hot start is definitely more of, I've said this for a long time too, was definitely more of Tom Brady. I think when you have a great quarterback and a great coach, it's always your player. I think your player makes you look great, and I think that that Pat's success was Tom Brady. You know, if you put if if you put Bill Belichick, uh, if you if you put Belichick as the head coach of the Jets, and you take Adam Gase and you put him as the head coach of the Patriots for this, you know, however long this was, and you put Adam Gase with Tom Brady, I think it's the same result. I think the Patriots win year after year, and the Jets are horrible. I think it's definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not taking nothing away from Belichick. Belichick is the best coach in football. His schemes are great. He takes the best player out of the game week after week. Like he knows what he's doing, more so than any other coach in the history of the NFL. But that pay- Patriots success equates more. It was more of Tom Brady, a superstar quarterback for sure. I think. I think one of the craziest things about the NFL is some of the parity in divisions. Like I could not tell you when the next time the Jets will win the division. Likewise. I cannot tell you the next time the Lions will win the division, just you know, a couple of examples. But meanwhile, you have a team like, or you have a division rather, like the NFC East, which has not had a repeat winner in like 15 plus years. So it's crazy how, um, crazy how that works out. Also, the AFC North now with uh, the, the Steelers at 8-0. Oh, a funny stat here is the Steelers are sitting, sitting 8-0. and oh. Baltimore 6-2. and two. They beat the Colts. Bounce back win their big second half. Um there's a stat that the Philadelphia Eagles have a better chance to win the NFC East than the Steelers do to win the AFC North. Yeah, I, I, I did see that, Jack, and it's hilarious, but it's not surprising, you know, given the current state of the NFC East. I'm still sticking, though, with my current selection. I think Washington, the football team, is going to win the division. I know the Eagles are probably a better team on paper, but the whole division is just awful, and I think it's really a coin flip uh, a, between, a, a big... between Philly, Washington, and... Maybe even the Giants. A big game coming up this weekend, Giants versus Philly. And the, the Giants are overlooked. Guys, they're sitting at 2-7. and seven, But the Giants, you know, they, they, held, they lost to the Buccaneers by, by a touchdown. Again, they were leading most of the game. They lost to the Bears on the final play of the game. They were beating the Eagles by 11 with five minutes left. Choked. They were beating Dallas with little time left. Choked. This is a Giants team that could really have five or six wins and have a chokehold on this division. Uh, if they can come out and beat Philly this weekend, you know, at MetLife, if Sterling Shepard continues to be hot, Evan Ingram continues to be hot, Daniel Jones plays mistake-free football, the Giants right now to me look like the front-runner to win the NFC East. Jack, I think that's just hilarious that you're saying that in week week 10 of the 2020 NFL season. Um, while, the like, Giants, so while, the, while the Giants it's, did it's, 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 it's so true, though. It's so true. 
It's funny. Um, that's anyway, true. guys. Anyway, guys. Um, you know, we've been on for quite a bit now tonight. Uh, I think we're gonna, you know, wrap up in a few. But as always, you know, it's been a pleasure, you know, hanging out with you all. Uh, Jordan Leopold, Jack Weinberger, always a good time. Um, and you know, I'm looking forward to continuing, you know, uh, continuing with this podcast for weeks to come. Um, but thank you again. Thank you guys. Um, it's been awesome, and I'll, I look forward to being back in uh, next week. Uh, this is Alex uh, signing off. Jack Weinberger signing off. Great show today, boys. Yeah, just to touch on this really quickly, I know I kind of throw this in at the end of all our podcasts, but just so everybody's aware, you can f- you can listen to us anywhere. We're on Apple Music, we're on Spotify, we're on Anchor.fm. All you have to do is search Touch Em All Podcast. For Alex and Jack, this is Jordan signing off. Have a good night.